Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Good morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you? February. Feels like we were just celebrating Christmas and now we're into properly away from the beginning of the year. No more excuses for not being part of this year and fully engaged. Exactly. And our theme this month is night sky, which I think is particularly good for February because I always find it such a still dark early in the evening and still dark in the morning when you wake up. But the light is coming. Coming. And also this time of year, I guess maybe, you know, in the run up to the end of the year, we're all, or at least I'm so focused on Thanksgiving and then Christmas and the whole litany of what comes January always is lost to me as a month to try and get my stuff together, get myself organized, all those things that I fail to do. February, I just kind of settle in. And I do, I feel like the light is coming, the change is coming, the beginning of the Persian year is coming, so it's within shot. But also, I love this time to have outside and looking at the sky, looking at those stars. I'm a real stargazer. So we have a beautiful story today by Anna Levin called Lying Down to Look Up. And we're going to read the poem that she's suggested to pair with it, which is an Emily Dickinson poem. Do you want to get us started, Claire? Yeah, I will do. Lying Down to Look Up. I was never really girl guide material. Wearing a uniform and especially a skirt was a penance that had to be endured during school hours, but not something I'd choose in my free time. And I wasn't too convinced about the swearing allegiance bit either. How would I serve the Queen? And what even was my duty to God? I never made the promise, but somehow they let me join in anyway for what I saw as the good bits. Campfires on the shore, melting chocolate into bananas slit lengthways, and best of all, sleeping under the stars. I must have been about 12 years old, in a big field in northern Lancashire, free within the limestone wall that curved along its boundary. It was the first time I ever remember lying down to look up at the night sky. Sure, I'd seen the stars before. We'd moved here when I was 11, from the city to this coastal village with darkness at night and the sheer quantity of stars. But this was different. All the time and space we had to do nothing but gaze and the angle from which to do so. Crane your neck and look up into a star-clustered sky. And I guess you take in about 90 degrees of the view. A bit more if you tip your head right back. Lie down and that angle widens expansively. Suddenly the sky gets a whole lot bigger. Somehow it feels like 360 degrees of sky. That's what I remember. The sense that the stars were above and around and beneath me. I was vaguely aware of the caterpillar people in sleeping bags, snoozing and shuffling or gently chatting close by. We lay on our camping mats in a wide circle near the middle of the field, our toes towards each other, the heavens above us all. As the sky edged from deepest blue into indigo and then on towards black, More and more stars appeared. They were scattered and strewn above me. Or was it below me? I stared and stared and stared. Until I was in space, floating through this immensity on a small, round, turning planet. The edgy feeling that I might fall off the world and into the darkness 
just added to the thrill of that night. Gradually, the chattering around me ceased, ceding to gentle snores and the heavier breath of slumber. Then silence. Was everyone else asleep? The girl closest to me was, and I was surprised by the sudden urge to kiss her. Not because of who she was, but because of the way the light of the night was glancing her skin. Just a silvery hint of contours, neck, chin, forearm, an upturned hand as she slept. I'd never felt more awake or alive myself, snug in my sleeping bag cocoon, with the whole universe twinkling and shining above and all around me. I wanted never to sleep, just to drink it all in, the cool night air and the smell of the grass and the million, billion, gazillion stars. Did they all have names, I wondered? And who joined the dots and when? Who decided which stars belonged with each other to make a shape? I'd learned a few of the main constellations like Orion and his belt and his sword hanging down, or as Becky said, giggling, his willy. But where was he? I couldn't see him. But I found the saucepan. Why is that called the Great Bear? And the W? Is that called Cassiopeia? And why? I had vaguely remembered notions about them and their stories and wondered if you could do a girl guide badge in the stars. And if you didn't wear the uniform, could you still get the badges? Where would I put them? Maybe you could just join the dots yourself, create your own stories. Trace the shapes across the sky and let patterns and pictures be revealed there, like you do when you're gazing at clouds. Maybe the names didn't matter. I was just there in the midst of it all, dazzled by the sky and the immensity. I felt tiny and enormous all at once. The bigness was glorious, my head dizzy with delight at such expansiveness, and my heart thrumming with a surge of optimism and hope. I guess I must have fallen asleep eventually, as I don't remember the dawn, but not before the images and sensations of the night were sealed into my mindscape. It was the first of such memories, and if I scan the path of my life now, dark sky moments shine along the way. Shall we stop there for a moment? Yeah. Let's talk about the sky. Do you have a similar memory of the first time you saw, like really saw the sky? I don't know if I particularly do. I mean, I do have a memory of looking out the my bedroom window with my dad at bedtime. And I think of him holding me up. So I must have been little and looking for the North Star. Which comes off the edge of the, the, I can always find it because it comes off the edge of the Big Dipper, doesn't it? So if you follow the line of that, you'll be able to see it. And my dad was particularly interested in the sky and he would know which times of year you could see Venus, which from memory I think is slightly blue and is brighter at certain times of year. And then there are other points which potentially you can see Jupiter and Venus at the same time. Uh, Yeah, I'm really digging in now to the... So I have a memory of being told things about the sky and shown things, but I don't particularly have that sort of awareness and awakening sense that you get from this piece. No, and I think even as a young girl, I think I I did a 
a science project about this guy where you had to kind of etch a piece of clear plastic and make marks on it and sort of learn. So I did look at it that way. But I don't remember having this kind of wonder about this guy until I would say adulthood, you know, probably camping trips when I was, you know, a young woman, maybe in kind of law school age or in my 20s anyway. And then maybe it was partly getting there under my own steam having made the time to be in those places that I then stopped to wonder at this great enormous spance. I think before then it would have been just, I probably met it with the same way that I met other wonders in the world, you know, the kind of natural world. Not that it's not astonishing, but that this is just part of the many things that we're surrounded with. Whereas in adulthood, I suddenly realized, I think, the expansiveness of it in some way. I think I realized the expansiveness of it as a child, but that made me really uncomfortable. So it slightly freaked me out to think about other planets out there and other the possibility of life on other planets and the possibility of little confines of my world going way beyond things I understood. And I, I actively remember thinking to myself, oh, I don't want to think about that because it's just too overwhelming as a child. And I think I remember now that I'm thinking about this and recalling this memory, it was after watching some article on Blue Peter about moon travel or space travel, there being some information around space and how vast it was and how long it took to travel to Mars and, you know, the fact you probably couldn't go there and back in a lifetime or, you know, whatever the information was. And like, whoa, too much, too much. Don't want to think about that. I don't know that we're any more comfortable with it as an adult, but it's one of those things, I think generally for me, the older I get, the more I realize how little I know about the world around me, even my immediate world, even the people around me. We know each other, but we don't even know ourselves all that well. And it's kind of almost a con- not giving up, but an acknowledgement that actually a lot of the world remains a mystery to us. Whereas I think you hit on something there that as young people, in order to feel safe, we need to believe that we understand something about the world around us and the parameters of our kind of known world or our families or our houses or, you know, all those sorts of things that we understand or think we understand. But now I'm kind of throw up my hands and say like, well, gosh, I didn't know that all the time, you know, about myself, about the people, about the world I live in. And so somehow I'm much more comfortable just staring at the stars in a way that I'm not asking to understand it. You know, I'm just taking it in um, rather than it giving me a kind of fright in a way. It makes me think of, you know, all the amazing people who study the stars as well. You know, I remember meeting a poet friend who was an astronomer before, or probably still is an astronomer and a poet. The thing about being a poet is you get to be lots of other things at the same time by definition. But I remember thinking, gosh, imagine spending your whole life studying something you'll never visit. You know, you'll never be able to touch. And of course, I have to mention one of my favorite astronomers, Williamina Fleming, who was a Scot who went to America at the turn of the century or maybe a bit earlier and the last century. She was from Dundee and she became the first woman astronomer for sure. And still so many of her discoveries or like the first nebula, lots and lots of amazing discoveries. But she was the housekeeper of the head of the observatory at Harvard. And he apparently famously fired everybody one day in a rage saying that his Scotch housekeeper could do better and hired her. And she is still one of the most famous women astronomers. But reading her archive, which exists at the National Library and is open for everybody to go and look at, and it's it's remarkable. I imagine spending your whole life studying a thing you'll never really see except through equipment you'll never touch. I'm not sure I could do it. 
And I love this idea of maybe you could just join the dots yourself, create your own stories. Because I have often wondered, and I'm sure there's a very technical explanation, but, you know, looking at the sky, thinking, well, why? Why is Orion's belt those particular stars? Because I can see an Orion's belt or similar shaped. If I joined that one to that one to that one, and it looks much more like a belt than... (laughs) than the real Orion's belt. So I recognise that story, that part of the story. Maybe you could just join the dots yourself and create your own stories. I like that idea. I do too. And I suspect it's also partly just a way of remembering, you know, in the way that metre and rhyme works in poetry. And we have all sorts of devices to allow us to remember things. And also in this case, I suspect that the stars allow lots of different cultures around the world and different scientists and different histories to be talking about the same thing, to be sure that you're talking about the same thing. I agree, maybe we should all start making up our own stories about the stars we don't know about as a way of recognizing them again. Because otherwise, a bit like we were talking about at the beginning before we read the story, how do we ever remember, you know, what we're looking at? How do we ever look at it and then the next day think, oh, there it is again? Because there's just so many of them, particularly in a dark sky place. It's hard to pick out the same thing over and over again unless there's shapes that you recognize. And in my case, there's shapes you recognize and name <laughs> so that you have a reason to go find them. Shall we keep reading and see what's yeah, going let's, on? Yeah, let's do that. There's an evening in New Zealand when I was in my 20s, wallowing in natural hot pools after a day's fruit picking in a mandarin orchard. The thick, sulfurous smell of the water quickly faded, and I was aware only of the strange texture, the way my limbs softened and floated in it. I leant back, enjoying the curious sensation as steam swirled around me from the water below and cool air reached down from the darkening sky above. It made me think of pancakes with hot blackberry sauce and ice cream, the surprise in your mouth at the mix of temperatures. I shut my eyes, savoring it all, and when I opened them, the sky was thick with stars, absolutely crowded with millions of tiny lights sprinkled in unfamiliar patterns. How could it hold so many? Were there more stars in the southern skies, or was the night here clearer than anywhere else I'd known? Later in life, I'd settled in Scotland, and there's a night in Pitlochry, the children already asleep in a holiday cottage one February half-term. I slipped into the garden to let the dog out before bed and gasped at the brightness of the scene. Deep snow gleaming on the ground and brilliant stars above. I decided to wake the kids, thinking how my colleague from Shetlands remembers being woken at night and lifted from her warm bed to see the merry dancers as the northern lights shimmered in the cold winter skies. This, too, was worth getting up for. The cold air was exhilarating, and we delighted in our plumes of dragon's breath reaching into the sky where the stars shone with such precision. At home, I'd got used to a smudgy screen of sky glow between us and the stars. Here they were so close, so bright, like you could reach out and touch them. This I could promise. One day we'll sleep outside with the stars and look up as long as we want. It made my heart sing to share this moment, yet also ache to have lived in another time. I realized how I think of such nights, rare, 
over the course of a mostly urban life, as if the stars were there, a revelation tied to a particular earthly location. A field in Lancashire, or a hot pool in New Zealand. Of course, they're always up there. It's our view of them that comes and goes and is mostly eclipsed by too much artificial light. Once upon another time, this was normal. A sky full of stars was once part of an everyday night. It's funny, as I was reading that, I was thinking that, you know, the first few nights I spent in Galloway, maybe 10 years ago, and went for walks in the night and really noticing the stars out there. But now I do look up every night, but when I take one of my children there who are also very urban children, they are astonished by it. And I'm always delighted at their kind of response to the sky that feels quite normal to me now to look up at. Yeah. And I think that we don't understand the sort of light pollution that exists. We live with it in an urban lifestyle and don't really realize it until we're in a place where we don't have it. And my dad lives just beyond Dundee in a small village outside a larger town in the northeast of Scotland. But the house is built in a field and beside the field is a graveyard and so there's very little other buildings and lights and you know the street lighting is far enough away that you don't notice it and I always feel when I go to bed there it's so dark you know it's almost palpable the thickness of the darkness in a way that despite blackout linings on curtains and all the rest of it in in the city you, you just don't get that same quality of darkness if that's such a thing. And then you get the opposite of course too because when the moon is out it's so bright. Sort of last year when we were on the sea in a house up on the cliffs the light was so bright from the moon that you'd have to make sure the blinds were closed because it was literally like the sun coming in you know it would just light up the whole room and I think when I was talking about those walks that I took maybe eight or nine years ago now I was astonished by the moonlight, that I didn't need a torch, I didn't need my light on my phone, um, that I could see where I was going perfectly well without a single street lamp or light of any kind from anywhere within miles. And I love this idea of lifting the children from the bed and waking them, you know, going against that never wake a sleeping child idea for them to see the northern lights. And it made me smile to see them referred to as merry dancers because in my family it was always referred to as the heavenly dancers. So, and I thought that was, you know, that sort of dancer's idea was sort of maybe something that had been made up by my granny or something, but clearly not. There's a beautiful um, Philip Levine poem about being lifted onto his father's shoulders, a memory of being lifted onto his father's shoulders during a particularly difficult time, I think, for his father and in that family being shown shown the stars. And it's, it's such a beautiful image, of course, because for many reasons, and if you don't know the poem, go find it because it's a wonder. But it's a beautiful poem because it's as if that act of lifting a child sort of five feet higher towards the stars would in any way help you see them better, you know, given the relative distances. And yet it's what little we can do for our children. It's a beautiful metaphor for us trying to lift our children up. And yet very sad, I think, in some ways too, about our capacity, you know, what we actually have within us to to accomplish in that case. And yet it's a beautiful memory for Philip, I think, Uh, certainly one that he writes about later in life. So that idea that we might lift our children up so they could see the stars better is, is a funny thing. 
Yeah, it reminds me, I, I know the poem you're talking about, and the first time I read it, it really reminded me, I don't know if you remember that children's book, Papa, Get Me the Moon. I think it might be an Eric Carle one. That certainly the illustration kind of rem- reminds me of that, but um, it's a little girl who asks her dad to get her the moon, and it's the book folds open with a bigger and bigger and bigger ladder on each page as the dad gets her the moon and returns it to her. And of course, after full moon, it disappears into a tiny sliver, and she's... You know, but it was it's that idea of, you know, believing your parents can make things better, do things for you, get things for you. Yeah. And of course, as we get older, those those sorts of stories I find beautiful and sad because we acknowledge what little we can do. And obviously it's an awful lot and it feels like an awful lot when they're little, but what little we can do in terms of meeting the wishes of a child or helping them see the way any more clearly. I think in this story we get the feeling that the sadness comes not from not being able to do that, but just with a lack of regularity that these moments hold, you know, that they're not part of a kind of everyday existence, but that they are, they are the exception. And of course, the whole story is telling us the moments of exception in our own life. It's kind of feels like an admonition to me to go out and look at the stars every night when it's not cloudy. Before we leave this story, can I just make one point? Pancakes don't have to have ice cream. Pancakes are a breakfast food. Pancakes with hot blackberry sauce is a perfectly acceptable thing to eat for breakfast. If you add ice cream, you have to wait till dessert. So you heard it from me. I just want to give everybody permission to eat pancakes for breakfast whenever they like. Just leave the ice cream off. You can have the ice cream for buddy. I know how you feel about pancakes and your lifelong love of pancakes. So you would eat them with ice cream for breakfast, I know for sure, if you so wished. Okay, fine. Have an ice cream. It's fine. (laughs) Thank you, Anna, so much for your beautiful story we we really enjoyed it um shall shall we move on to the poem yeah so as, as you said earlier margie this is an emily dickinson one that anna paired or or thought would go well with her story so it's called i saw no way the heavens were stitched i saw no way the heavens were stitched i felt the columns close the earth reversed her hemispheres I touched the universe, and back it slid, and I alone, a speck upon a ball, went out upon circumference, beyond the dip of bell. How can she manage to get so much into eight (laughs) short lines? Exactly. I was just about to say, she's basically covered everything we've been talking about for the last 40 (laughs) minutes in probably 25 seconds. Yeah, so all of you out there listening can just ignore us and go straight to Emily Dickinson if you like. Yeah, just the beautiful imagery there of saying, you know, understanding in a moment or trying to understand in a moment the scope of our sort of insignificance on this tiny speck. And I think that is, we haven't talked about it, but that is one of the useful things of looking at the stars if you're having a hard time, um, or even if you're not, you know, to kind of put everything in perspective. You know, we have this sort of one moment as a speck on a ball flying through space. I know that my teens, when I'm stressed, will say that it's okay. I'm I'm just an ant on a ball flying through space. And I think... Well, that's a useful reference point, actually, when you're feeling the exams are getting overwhelming or, or life is getting overwhelming. Um, all the things you have to do um, are sort of mounting up. Thinking of yourself as a speck on a ball flying through space is helpful, but Emily says it's so much better. 
I love that line, the heavens were stitched. You, you almost feel that it is a tapestry when you look up of different pieces that have been kind of brought together and the constellations sort of fitting together as part of a jigsaw almost. Yeah, and you could see it as a tapestry with the light holes, <clears throat> you know, the sort yeah. of stitch holes. The needle, being... yeah, mm. exactly. Um, and then, of course, that beautiful image about beyond the dip of a bell, like beyond... If I, it brings to mind the, the image of a bell swinging in the usual arc of the way, like a pendulum almost, you know, the way things swing. And yet beyond that is beyond what we expect, maybe beyond what we can hear or know. You know, it's a beautiful image for um, describing beyond what we think of, really, hear, see. I think when we talk about space and think about space, there's so many of the words that we use, you know, the, the way the moon goes round the sun and the axis and spinning and Saturn's rings and, you know, that, that whole imagery of arc and shape for me, just that line dip of bell just brings all those connotations to my mind. And, and also the big dipper, the word dip on its own. Although I wonder if I, stage Emily Dickinson was writing this it was called the Big Dipper I don't know when the naming took place I suspect it probably was yeah for me it's the opposite it's like pointing out that there's something well beyond all those quant things we do to quantify the unknown you know so as you say all the axis and the kind of measurements you know is literally a speck of sand in the unknown um beyond what we can see and yet there is something about the eye here. There's an awful lot of eye in this poem, and and I alone is is almost like staking your claim in this vastness, in this unknown universe. I am, I am there alone. I am the speck. At least while we think of a speck as being insignificant, it is a named space. It is a it is a speck. So it's almost like this is my corner. This is I, I and yet I exist without having to articulate that and and again that echoed in that I touched the universe so you know I have some agency over how I respond to the universe despite its vastness despite I am the speck you know it, it brings back that I touch the universe brings back that whole sort of slightly, and I can feel it, that childhood sensation of, whoa, too big, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. don't want to think about it. Yeah, I wonder too if there's a, this is a description of a moment, one you might describe as a, a moment of knowledge or a panic attack or something, you know, some, something that we have words for where the world gets too large and then too small. You know, we often describe those moments in kind of, mental health terms now maybe um or or metaphysical terms um uh, or meditation terms and yet it feels like she's having a moment of kind of yeah where the world expands and comes back again and or almost presses in on her you know i saw no way i felt the column close and back it slid you know felt on on the precipice of overwhelm and then something happens she, she that that she doesn't regain control that's but starts to feel better and the pressure eases and reversing the hemispheres is an interesting line because you don't necessarily think she's moved suddenly it's more that 
her understanding of maybe physics or where she is has switched or the weight is heavier or something or gravity has changed. Something has shifted, which for me feels like something I can recognize when you might be having a panic attack or you might be, you know, there just sometimes there's a flash of something and then you come back again. Anxiety. I'm not sure. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at it through that lens, it's also a beautiful description of what many of us experience, I think, um, or have experienced. Well, I wondered if it was it was um, related to, you know, uh, often when you're in feeling that weight of anxiety, it's a real pressing down and closing. And I wondered if the earth reversed or hemispheres is almost the moment of release and it's a releasing of gravity and a, a lifting and a lightening. And yet for me, the columns closing are... Yeah, that's the pressing in. And then I wonder if that is the earth reversing or hemispheres, the point of release. I don't know. I don't know. It's really interesting. And yet we could read this poem either way. We could read it as a kind of um, anxiety or stress and then a release, or we could just read it as looking at the stars, I think, and recognizing your place in this vastness and kind of that overwhelm we can also feel by recognizing how very insignificant we are relative to, you know, this vast sky. And that's what good poems do, isn't it? <laughs> Give us a choice. And I think it's a really, really good match for the story. I think that's all from us today. Thank you for joining us and having us in your ears. And we look forward to having you with us again next month when we'll be chatting about another story and poem. Poem.